Part two of the Josias podcast on the Enlightenment. And part one, we focused on Aristotle, and Potter Edmund gave a quick sketch, but a very good sketch, I thought, of uh, the uh, teleological view of Aristotle and uh, touched on some of the reasons why it might be reasonable to hold that view even today. Uh, Today, uh, or rather in this part, we are now turning to the Enlightenment. Why did they reject Aristotle? What did they replace him with? And uh, what were the consequences for post-Enlightenment philosophy of nature? And what were the consequences for Enlightenment philosophy of ethics and politics and post-Enlightenment ethics and politics? Potter, Ed, Elliot, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. Didn't you enjoy that extra selection of Philip Glass that we just heard? <laughs> we didn't. We didn't play something else for 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 part two. <laughs> no, th- this this week. So so uh, last time uh, last time it was the grid, uh, which is from uh, Koyanis Katsi, um, <laughs> the the Godfrey Reggio documentary. Uh, this week more Philip Glass. Uh, it taken from. Uh, his um, his opera Satyagraha, which is um, about Gandhi and Tolstoy. <laughs> um, this is totally good. bizarre opera, but it's awesome. Uh, specifically, the second act. Uh, that's that's what I like best. Um, it's got a, a kind of meditative feel going on, um, and it, it's I think fitting for our discussion today because Gandhi and Tolstoy are both. Uh, very, very modern thinkers. Um, even though, you know, Gandhi had this interesting Luddite streak. He he hated the modern world. He thought everyone should be living in... Oh, and Tolstoy too, though. Tolstoy too. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Tolstoy too. They, they should, everyone should sort of re- revert to, to primitive villages. Um, yeah, Tolstoy uh, 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 would... He made a little room where he he pretended to be a cobbler and made just awful shoes, the worst <laughs> shoes, and would rage against his wife for living in the house and having all the nice things. But meanwhile, he st- still had you know access to the house. He wasn't really living in a hut. He was just play acting and pretending everyone else was being hypocritical and doing things like writing the Kreutzer Sonata about which was clearly about his wife everyone knew that was about his wife how dare she uh uh, have be at a party where he invites someone to play the kreutzer sonata and then essentially attacks her (laughs) i am happy with this musical choice though for for one reason i don't think any of the people who taught me aristotle and uh, uh the enlightenment know how to use a computer but on the off chance that someone was were to play them this I would be worried. What if they listen and, and, and think I say something <laughs> foolish? But they will never make it through the music selection. So I'm perfectly safe. I can say anything I want. <laughs> uh, okay. So anyway. Potter or, or maybe Ali, do you want to start us off with, uh, with uh, the Enlightenment then? Um, Last week we started with a quote from, from Leo Strauss. I don't think we need to, to read it, uh, the full thing out again. But it's kind of useful he contrasts sort of the two positions, right? Mm-hmm. 
And uh, the scientific revolution starts with people like Bacon and Galileo and Descartes. Why do they reject Aristotle? Or, and not just Aristotle. I mean, they, they're rejecting classical philosophy, really. Right, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a bigger rejection than Aristotle. Aristotle is very specifically targeted, though, by all of them. Mm-hmm. Right. And that, that has to do with, and I mean, the first thing to see is that has to do with Aristotle's role in um, the science of the time. The, if you look at Bacon, especially, and at Descartes as well, um, well, gosh, at all of these, Galileo, too, in, in his extremely sarcastic dialogues. His dialogues, by the way, sorry, I just have to interject this. Uh, outside of Plato, I think he writes the best dialogues. Even someone like Augustine, when he writes the dialogues, they're so flat. Plato and then Galileo are the two people who really, they have characters. They mastered the form, yeah. Yeah, they, they, they're really good. I can't really uh, appreciate the literary excellence. But... But the, you have this tremendous polemic against the scholastic science of the time, the school science. Um, and um, in part, it's justified, and in part, it's not justified. And in part, it's justified because what happens in, um, especially in late scholastic science, is that you lose uh, the the actual way in which Aristotle approached the natural world, you lose kind of this immediate contact with sense experience. Um, it becomes a very a technical system. So the way that natural philosophy is taught uh, at the time of Bacon and Galileo is uh, in a kind of technical jargon, remotely derived from Aristotle via translation into Latin, sometimes first Arabic and then Latin. You have this extremely technical vocabulary. And these sort of technical definitions are taken as the starting point of the science. Right. Rather than really attending to nature herself, listening to uh, natural things and and attending to what we know about nature in our um, pre-scientific experience of the world. We see that again, oddly, uh, uh, sort of uh, amusingly, just to interject again with with something, a bit of a tangent. But you see that again, actually, in the neo-scholastics. Uh, yeah. They very quickly yeah. start writing these manuals. Now, the manuals are fine in a sense, because uh, particularly because they're focused on Thomas. It's a good way to get a very synoptic, quick overview if you're looking for some position of his. But they're teaching from them. So people really are starting with formula, not with uh, the real starting points of philosophy. And you see that, again, yeah. there's, a very, there's a backlash and people reject it, although they go in a different way uh, uh, than the Enlightenment in some ways. Any right. event. I mean, the manual is good for teaching dogma, basically. I mean, it's, it's a practical teaching instrument. Right. It's not good for teaching how to practice philosophy. No, I mean, if you have some parish priest who's never going to be a philosopher, doesn't want to be a philosopher, doesn't need to be a philosopher, maybe that's fine. And oh, it oh, may be... Philosophers do I just, uh, I just, on my blog, I just posted a quote from a, a Kazakhstani wise man about this. <laughs> 
But um, if you look at, at Galileo's dialogues, Simplicius, who's the, the caricature of, of scholastic philosophy, he is not a philosopher. That no. guy, he has no idea what the hell he's talking about. He just has these these uh, technical, he just has this technical jargon down and he has these technical definitions. Yeah, and, and he's he's well, red-faced and spluttering. He has no, yeah, he has zero answer. Um, mm-hmm. This is why uh, one of our... our Common one of Joel and my teachers, he he wanted to write a book called Simplicius's Revenge, in which you have all the comebacks that Simplicius should have had, but <laughs> it's too dumb to have, and too um, uh, and too book learned. He's, he has no contact with reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other thing, so that's the first thing that, that that's what I think is legitimate about the um, Enlightenment critique of Aristotelianism. It's a critique of a decadent, uh, jargon-ridden, um, uh, technified Aristotelianism, a school Aristotelianism, hence the name Scholastic. But um, the other thing is, which I think is not justified, but which is maybe also partly related, is that they hate the old science because it's um, theoretical rather than practical. So in uh, in Plato and Aristotle, you have this tremendous uh, appreciation, this tremendous eros for speculative truth, for uh, the highest um, activity of the human being as a as a rational being, as being found in uh, the seeing, the speculation of uh, the truth, and especially the highest truths, of coming to see um, what is the cause of all things, or the causes of all things. The, for Plato, it's the, the forms, the subsistent forms, and finally the form of the good, which is uh, the ultimate cause of all things. And to see that, that's an activity that is completely um, useless. It's completely autotelic. Uh, it's for its own sake. It's you don't contemplate the form of the good in order to be able to defeat Sparta in war or something like this. You contemplate that form because it is good and because it makes you happy to know that truth. And and that is rejected by very polemically by both by Bacon and Descartes. Not Galileo doesn't doesn't really go into that as much, but Bacon and and Descartes really slammed that idea of science. They say science is, the, and their idea of science, um, which you know Bacon is the initiator of it. Descartes uh, learns it from Bacon. Is it should be something that increases our control of the world. So right. Bacon says, you know, we've been driven out of the out of paradise, and the world is kind of in rebellion against us, and we need to reestablish the happy state of the Garden of Eden by um, controlling the world and knowledge is power. Knowledge is what's going to give us power over the world. So the kind of knowledge that you're going to seek is determined by that aim, by that practical aim, rather than by, uh, so rather than wanting to come to an understanding of the deepest causes of the world, you want to come to a, an art, a techno, a techne, a technological right. uh, control of the world. So, so to add to that, one of the other problems, it wasn't just formula, but the scholastics were tending towards uh, 
and uh, they were tending towards nominalism also. They were tending towards, so they weren't just trying to be good Thomas, but they were stuck in manuals or something. A lot of them were, in fact, uh, saying you couldn't say anything re- really about the world. Uh, right. or, or all you were doing is, is, is words, um, depending on, on how you read Occam. Uh, and this really does, uh, I think, make Descartes in particular a little more understandable. Because Descartes, so Bacon is very earthy. Bacon just wants power. Bacon is out. Uh, uh, there's the, the story about how he dies. He, he rushes out of his carriage into the snow to chase some chickens to try to observe them for his, you know, catalog of science. He catches pneumonia and dies. Uh, uh, whereas Descartes, what is his philosophy like? Well, he's sitting in his armchair. On a furnace. Yeah, <laughs> with the furnace in it. <laughs> or, or was it, uh, no, on an oven, in an oven? Okay. Something like that. I think it was a, a tile oven. Yeah, right, right. right. Uh, and he's, I mean, my word compared to Descartes' beginning point of of uh, philosophy, uh, even Plato looks like he's uh, <laughs> con- connected with the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, so we've got this. So there's a pre-existing nominalist tendency that that already has a kind of skepticism built into it right. about. The, the intelligibility of nature and so um what so then you have bacon and descartes and all of these guys saying well actually we can know things so <laughs> we can know things by uh practical experimentation and observation and, and so on and we can develop these patterns mathematical regularities in, in, the, right. in the world around us. so my claim my claim also and and far from being a historian of philosophy in this area, uh, who knows? I, I, I make this knowing I'm an amateur, but my claim is that there's sort of two things in the Enlightenment. Number one, you have this very, this idea of power and this idea of, of observation for power. You don't, you don't, you're not looking to know, you're, you're looking to use. And that's, that's Bacon exemplifies that. And then you also have a sort of mathematical tendency and, uh, a tendency that you'll see more and more to think that thought is very disconnected from the world. Uh, and, and you see that starting in Descartes and it, it plays out ultimately in Kant. Uh, but I think they both come from nominalism because nominalism not only cuts you off from the world, but it also, uh, these nominalists ended up putting the will before anything else. Why is something good? Well, God decreed it. There's no reason. It's just God's decree. God could have decreed anything. Uh, so you end up, that sort of feeds into Bacon's idea of power as well, as far as I can tell. Yeah. And I mean, the, the mathematical um, turn, as it were, in in the scientific revolution, I think has is overdetermined. You have different oh, yeah. um, causes working together. So the one is Descartes notices that in in metaphysics and uh, so on, uh, there's all this disagreement, and uh, um, you have all these skeptics and so on who say you can't know anything. But in mathematics, 
everything's very clear and it's easy to, to know things. So this is one side of why he's interested in mathematics. Um, but then the other side um, has immediately to do with the practical uh, aim of uh, Cartesian science. Um, and you see this already in, in Galileo as well. Uh, namely that um, mathematics is extremely useful in producing control over uh, things. So a, a number of, of kind of minor texts uh, from, from the ancient philosophical corpus are sort of uh, rediscovered and take on a new importance um, for Galileo and then for Descartes. So Galileo, in the Discourse on the Two Sciences, the two new sciences. He begins um, with a problem from a, a, a little work called the Mechanics, a peripatetic work. Um, used to be attributed to Aristotle himself. Now it's usually thought to be by one of his students uh, in Athens. Um, but in the Mechanics there, pseudo-Aristotle, whoever the writer is, he says that... Uh, that mechanics is is kind of a, an applied science, and it's kind of a mean between physics and mathematics. You use mathematical truths in order to uh, enable you to do things that are difficult, that ma nature makes you difficult. This art, in art, you sometimes want to do things that are contrary to nature. For example, you're building a building, and you want to lift uh, a rock that's um, bigger than your strength. So it's contrary to nature in a sense for you to lift it because it's the nature of the rock to uh, to stick to the ground and um, your strength, the nature of your strength to be too weak to lift the rock. But you have a good reason for overcoming nature in this sense. And mathematics can help you do that uh, through the, um, the application of geometry to the science of levers which will en enable you to lift these big rocks. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, Galileo is enchanted by this text and, and Bacon as well. Bacon says, you know, Aristotle understood that the way to get power of nature is by applying mathematics to it. And he quotes that passage from the mechanics. Um, so, so then, yeah, go on. So you were talking about it being overdetermined and I'm, I'm at the risk of sort of repeating myself. Uh, the other another important reason though that they turn to math is because uh when you start being nominalist and when you start being a, a voluntarist you are already re starting to reject final cause and the great thing about math not only is it certain but also there's no final cause in sight so uh once you get calvin and uh, even even the Jansenist uh, conception of reason, it seems to me, following uh, McIntyre here, that it makes sense that you turn to math, and it makes sense that you start thinking about power, because reason itself is uh, powerless to get to, to, to any, any view of an end. In the right well because because the it's not really that there are no ends it's that 
uh, the end is supplied immediately in every act by God um, and isn't at all intrinsic in things. It's totally a function of the divine will because God is the puppet master holding everything in existence and making it do whatever it does, you know, without its own uh, <clears throat> sort of uh, nature as a, an, an instrumental cause. Right. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, um, I remember reading in Suarez in college, something about the fire and how, uh, you know, so you can think about, uh, a log catching fire and the, you know, the log is somehow disposed to catch fire and so on, but really any effect that could arise in the log is available to God. And so it's whether or not it catches fire, um, is totally a, just a function of, of the inscrutable will of God. Now, I'm probably getting Suarez totally wrong, but I, mean, I think that's kind of the essence of voluntarism, just that nature falls away because you don't need it anymore. And the sort of kind of natural teleology that we see in Aristotle falls away because it's so imminent in every act of every object um, by virtue of divine intention sort of controlling things. Right. I think that's, I think that's right. Uh, and, uh, so, uh, to, to, I'll throw it back to Potter now, but this ends up, I think it, it, it ends up, you, you get two worlds because you have the world of facts, which you want power over, which you want, uh, control of, and which you can describe mathematically. And then you have this sort of moral world. And Hume is the one who first formulates the is-ought problem. Uh, because once you take away ends from nature, there's no good in the realm of, of, uh, of natural science. There's no good in any sort of uh, uh, natural investigations. But you still have this leftover morality. You still have, you know, most people are, are Christian of some sort. Uh, mm -hmm. And they still want to be able to justify how they're going to uh, act. Uh, hold on just one second. We're having a slight moment of technical difficulties. Yeah, I, can, I can hear you again. Now. Okay, you can hear me okay. again? All right. So you get to Hume mm -hmm. is the one who, who, who really sets this out uh, sharply. And how is it then that the the Enlightenment people? So this is why they've they've we've explored why they rejected Aristotle and sort of what they replaced him with in terms of natural investigations. But in the realm of morality, the Enlightenment guys are all still trying to defend some sort of uh, uh, normal or, or or more or less along the same lines Christian ethic. Sort of. I mean, I mean, you mentioned Hume. Hume isn't really trying to defend a Christian ethic. No. Hume says it all just comes down to sentiment and prejudice and, you know, custom. Right. Right. So there's also, there's another, uh, there's another element in play here that, that deserves to be mentioned, which is just the, the kind of, uh, the rate at which ignorance uh, sets in following the Reformation. I mean, uh, 
uh, I talk to people a lot today about how uh, how ignorance of scholastic or neo-scholastic philosophy set in following the Second Vatican Council because Latin was no longer emphasized in the seminaries and none of these texts were available uh, to the mainstream. But if you think about what happens in Northern Europe, Protestant Europe, uh, or even even Catholic Europe following the Reformation, um, there's this just wildfire loss of understanding of of these already decadent scholastic systems. And so by the time you get to Hume, it's not like Hume is saying, oh, well, Aristotle was bad because my Suarezian professor uh, was too rigid and dogmatic. Right. You know, Hume doesn't really have an understanding of this stuff. Right. I mean, Kant probably never read classical philosophy. He probably just read summaries of it. It's kind of crazy to think about that, but um, it's just the the availability of this stuff falls away really fast. And so then they're just building off of uh, these new skeptical or rationalistic uh, systems or patterns of inquiry um, into something that seems to make sense given the problems that have been posed to them. Yeah, it becomes a historical problem, like you say. There's just a new starting place in general. They're they're not even going back to Aristotle at all anymore. And uh, uh, but I still think it's fair to say, on the whole, uh, the Enlightenment was still trying to justify, or at least give lip service towards justifying a Christian yeah. virtue or a Christian Christian ethic. Even people right. like Hume, where it's pretty clear he's not really doesn't really care about that, he has to be careful not to be too publicly uh, well, against he, it. He likes it. He likes it as a as a because of its staying power right. for society. It's comfortable for him for society to have a, a nice sort of bourgeois Christian morality, um, but uh, he he doesn't believe that it's it's knowable in any real sense it's all just kind of arbitrary but how do the other folks how do they justify how do they justify morality they they do have some arguments that they try to give yeah but can i can i uh, once again take a little step back from, oh absolutely sure uh, if you look at the new natural science that um bacon sort of uh envisions but isn't really able to execute descartes is really the one who begins it in real earnest. Um, and uh, if you look at that, you could, you don't need to come to the conclusion that Strauss talked about in that quote from last time, where you say nature is non teleological. Um, and therefore, you need to come into some kind of dualism between that you're talking about now between, you know, enlightenment morality is sort of a teleological morality with a non teleological natural philosophy. And how does that? How can those two uh, incompatible elements remain together? But if you look back, there is no reason, given um, the way their science uh, originates and what what is uh, what it actually, the actual gains in knowledge of the world that it is able to make. There's no reason to say this shows that the world is not teleological. Because what they do is just, in, a, in although they have some polemics against teleology, the actual scientific work that they do is just work that uh, brackets the whole notion of, of right. teleology. They really change the topic. Yeah. They change the topic and then they forget, as Elliot points out, 
pretty quickly. They forget what people yeah. used to say. And, you know, the same, exactly the same thing is true with substance and the notion of form. Yep. So, so, you know, the, the, the emphasis on uh, mathematics and, and atomism eventually uh, displaces the, the whole idea of substan- substantial form or essences. And you, you get these polemical dialogues by George Barclay about, you know, how silly the, the notion of substance is and all of this stuff. Um, but really, they don't, they don't get it. Um, that substance is one of the fundamental organizing concepts of our experience of the world. Right. And you can't just wave it away. No matter what scientific model you're dealing with, substance is always going to come creeping back in. It's indispensable. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, even in modern science, uh, whatever the level of atomism or, you know, weird wave particle thingy is, uh, there, there, the the notion of substance or, or or substantial unity or essences always has a place there, um, because things manifestly have uh, organized uh, you know, principles of motion uh, when they come together as wholes, and wholes really do differ in parts and are more than just uh, aggregates. So, I mean, the the, the there's a, exactly what you said. There's a kind of waving away and then a forgetting right they, they change the topic and then they they dispense with the concepts as if they've refuted them yep. <laughs> it's yeah. really amazing when you read it I, I remember the first time reading and thinking okay we're gonna get some real arguments against you know sort of the classical teleological view and against aristotle particularly nope you're not gonna get any you're gonna get some some, nope. some one-liners and some invective <laughs> and then they're gonna stop yes. talking about it altogether. <laughs> and then the reason why it, it's so uh, success, why they're so successful in in changing the topic, is because um, that the the way of applying mathematics that Descartes then develops is actually extremely uh, successful. Right. So Descartes not only does he he uh, he move to a, a, a mathematical model of natural science, but he actually invents a new kind of mathematics. Well, I mean, he, he's building on, on, on Viet, really. He's building on Viet, yeah, but he, um, Viet is like a child compared to... <laughs> 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 well, Francois Viet is, the, is this French mathematician before Descartes that Descartes uh, um, plagiarized. But... Uh, <laughs> But so Viet, Viet, uh, he develops kind of an, an algebraic method of doing mathematics, but he, uh, Viet still wants to tie everything back to classical, to a classical understanding of mathematics, where you have to interpret. There's an art of interpreting the algebraic symbols that, that always gets you back to sort of definite uh, arithmetic or geometrical quantities. Um, and... Descartes he plagiarizes the the method, but then he uh, he's much more radical in the way he cuts loose from classical mathematics. Classical mathematics is really about the contemplation of form, uh, not and that's why geometry is is the most important mathematical science in in classical math, where you really the emphasis is sort of on the um, the contemplation. Uh, of a, a sensible form by the intellect. 
you see that even with right. people like Pyth- uh, the Pythagoreans who who uh, cared tremendously about number, but the way they care about number seems goofy to modern people. I mean, th- th- you know, ten is so important because it's the first four some of the first four numbers, which is you know nice, but uh, okay. <laughs> and, and they have all these weird ideas about numbers, but it's because they are uh, they're also making mathematical breakthroughs because they really do care about the the form. And then you, you see, as Potter points out, the, the birth of algebra. It's like having computers before computers, because what you end up doing is you don't attend to the things and you just do your symbolic calculation, 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 and then you get an end product. And it ends up being very powerful. And I remember, you know, if you talk to the man on the street and try to argue against science too much they'll, they'll they'll end up pointing to cars or pointing to you know they'll be like we put a man on the moon what are you talking about uh, uh and that's not to downplay the fact that modern science does give us real insights it does if if you look at it the right way it does allow real contemplation but yeah descartes, descartes geometry really is innovative in that way that it, it gives you kind of a method of of calculating where you don't have to think about the natures of the things that you're dealing with. You have these variables that you treat as though they were determinant quantities, but they're not determinant quantities. And then you just you just um, apply these rules to them. And as you say, it's like a computer. A computer um, can do algebra, whereas no, no computer could uh, demonstrate Euclid theorems. <laughs> oh, not true. <laughs> there, yeah, there are actually weird... Um... This is nerdy and totally off topic, but there are there are uh, computer systems now that will do geometric proofs. Well, and what I mean, it means by doing geometric proofs is it reduces them to an algebraic formula, a la Descartes, and then um, has certain rules for then interpreting the result in geometric terms. But the computer is not contemplating geometric form. Right, it's not contemplating, but it can provide you with a series of propositions uh, in support of a theorem. Exactly. Right. That is, I mean, th- there you see very clearly the difference between Cartesian mathematics and, and uh, Euclidean mathematics. Because mm-hmm. that's what Cartesian mathematics is. It's basically computer, uh, a computer process. But it's, and, and for that very reason, because you, uh, you can just plug in quantities and, and spit out the result, and because you're abstracting from um, the natures of things and because the way he sets it up uh, instead of proceeding synthetically the way ancient mathematics did you you proceed analytically so you start with the result you want to get and then you um, you calculate from that to what you need because of all these things Descartes uh, mathematics is tremendously effective uh, in advancing the scientific project that he was interested in so if you if you compare Galileo um, Galileo's discourse on two new sciences with which is before Descartes' geometry, compare that with Newton's Principia, which is a good deal after Descartes' geometry. Although it's he like, doesn't really use quite the same. This is two in the weeds. Yes, it is. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> Newton was a greater mathematician than, than Descartes. Oh, by far. Obviously. And he doesn't... He's very in, he do, innovative in his own right. And blah, he's blah, innovative okay, in his yeah. own right. But if you look at the, if you look at the, the, the uh, demonstrations in Galileo, 
they're extremely um, clumsy and uh, tiresome because he's using he's using theorems from from classical geometry um, and and applying them uh, to uh, to the motions of, of cannonballs or of the planets or whatever. Uh, and it's really hard to do because the method wasn't designed. I mean, the method of classical geometry wasn't devised for that purpose. And so he has to end up taking, fudging things and taking shortcuts and stuff. And it's really unsatisfactory. Then you look at Newton and it's like, boy, this is really powerful. He's, it's so, the method has got such a, is so efficient and gets his results uh, and as you say, he, Newton himself does develop um, Cartesian mathematics. He, he brings in the notion of limits and so on. But it's it's taking the basic uh, the basic method of Cartesian mathematics and and going with it, and and it becomes extremely powerful tool for uh, explaining um, how the how the planets move, not why they move, but how what seeing that they move in a certain way in a certain pattern and how you can uh, give certain regularities that will provoke other regularities. Mm-hmm. Newton is interesting because he, well, no, I, I, I don't want to, we're, we're uh, we only have so we much time. The, the, I could talk about Newton for hours and hours. Um, so, uh, so senior Christian, at, uh, what was it? We were talking about uh, how the Enlightenment defends Christian ethics, correct? Yeah, because they, they, they start talking about morality and they want to have a basis for morality. So maybe, Elliot, maybe we should just go, let's go to Kant because he's, in my view, the, the master. He's the Aristotle of Enlightenment philosophy. He so looks back at everyone before him and synthesizes them the way Aristotle, you know, takes all the pre-Socratics and shows how they were all leading up to him, Aristotle. Yeah. 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 So uh, it's, it's funny. I, I, I never liked uh, Kant's ethics. I was a huge uh, Kant fanboy as a teenager. I loved, uh, I loved the, the first critique, but the, the ethics always seemed really boring. So um uh, okay, so I, I, you know, it, maybe it's cheap of me, but I think that understanding Kant uh, is best done by going back to his personal background. Yeah. Um, you know, so who is Kant? Kant's this guy. He's the son of a, what is it, a saddle maker in, in uh, Königsberg, now Kaliningrad, <laughs> uh, in, in East Prussia, which is... Uh, what it's now? Uh, it's Russia. Part of Poland? No, it's Russia. Oh, it's part of. That's right. That's it's right. This they little have that tiny little... weird enclave of Russia, but it's in Poland essentially. It's in Poland. It's surrounded by Poland. Um, it was the pretext for the invasion of Poland, I believe, in 1940. Because <laughs> they wanted a a railway oh. line, didn't they? Ah, uh, they okay. To they needed a with... land route to Kaliningrad. Yeah. <laughs> so okay. So anyway. Um, uh, Kant grows up in this pietist sort of post Say what pietist is. Um, okay, pietism was a religious movement. It was highly individualistic, Protestant, um, based on a, a quietist uh, uh, spiritual philosophy. Um, so what, what was it? There was no leadership. Uh, they tended to gather in people's households. Um you might it's it's kind of quaker like basically uh that's probably a, a good analogy um and 
so it's it's heavily uh, uh, moralistic. Um, it's very much focused on on uh, personal integrity, purity, responsibility, this sort of thing. Anyway, so Kant grows up in this kind of environment. Um, then as, a, as a, an academic philosopher, he's enamored with the work of uh, Christian Wolff and Leibniz, um, who were the great you know, rationalist thinkers of 18th century uh, German philosophy. Um, he has a brief encounter with Hume, who shakes up his world, uh, and he, he really loves um, a Newton. You know, Newton is, is kind of the... the the great exemplar of, of modern thinking. So uh, for Kant, uh, <clears throat> a lot of stuff comes back to how, um, how uh, necessary forms of subjectivity or, or our way of understanding the world determine uh, what we think and what we believe and what's true. So the world is a constructed reality. It's constructed by the mind in a way. Yeah, using a sort of um, Newtonian latticework, right? Uh, yeah, it's weird. So, you know, the, the Kant's metaphysics was designed in a way to serve as the, the metaphysical underpinning for a Newtonian worldview. Um, but it, 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 it's, it's hard to, well, I guess you can see it. Anyway, I, let's, let's not get well, fixated on that. It's a defense um, of Newton in a way against Hume, right? Right, right. So it's a defense of the possibility of giving causal accounts and and regular, uh, you know, naturalistic accounts of of things, you know, the motion of bodies, stuff like that. And uh, he does this by grounding it in um, the structure of subjectivity, basically. So how does the mind uh, uh, think and how is it that necessary functions of the mind uh, make it essential that Newtonian mechanics be possible as a, a as a known thing. Anyway, so you can follow that into his ethics, uh, which is really weird. So, um, but in Kant, everything comes back to forms of subjectivity. How does this the structure of of the mind, the structure of the subject, determine uh, the way we relate to reality? And so for, for Kantian ethics, it's also about uh, the structure of the person, but in terms of intention instead of in terms of imagination and experience. So That's an interesting um, way of, of putting it. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's all about uh, what, what is a rational or internally consistent way of intending things uh, that would make sense of your actions? How can you be a rational agent? Um, and so what are the, what are the basic requirements of our intentions in order for us to be, you know, upstanding, uh, reasonable human beings? And so from this, you know, Kant imports a lot of, uh, his pietist prejudices and comes up with a, a worldview according to which you have to be a, a good German pietist basically in order to be a rational agent. Um, but you know, it's, it's all, it, modern Kantians are not pietists. They don't have the same prejudices. And so modern Kantian ethics has a very different flavor from, uh, what he would have wanted it to look like. Right. Um, but this whole, so this whole it's, it's, uh, it's one of the, go ahead. I mean, this whole project, um, 
which is has kind of its its fullest flowering intent of uh, preserving uh, human morality um, at the same time as having a rigorously non teleological nature. Uh, it yep. seems to me that um, that Nietzsche is really good at, pub, at puncturing that balloon. At showing yes, that that's right. The <laughs> project of of morality is is just uh, um, basically nonsense. And, and it's based on prejudices, as you were showing with Kant, in his case, it happens to be these pietist Lutheran prejudices. But basically, they just uh, invent these explanations for the morality that they happen to want. I think this is right. an area where McIntyre, uh, or at least when I, when I first read McIntyre, and uh, you know, say what you will about McIntyre's positive project. Uh, when I first read him, he really does show how the Enlightenment, which starts off, uh, as we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago with the, the Mozart piece we played, it starts off with this <laughs> wonderful optimism. Oh, we're so rational now. We're going to explain everything. But there's really this sort of schizophrenic quality to it because you have the moral view, which is basically operating on habit. It's almost like a zomb- it's, it's, it's like a zombie. It's, it's, it's stumbling forward, but it's already dead. And then yeah. you have the uh, philosophy and science side, which is going a different way. And as time goes, you get more and more tension between the two until, I mean, I think Nietzsche is the one who really, uh, as Potter says, starts exploding, uh, some of the, uh, 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 prejudices and delusions. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I mean, enlightenment metaphysics functions the same way where, there's this so um, uh, empirical science and, and and practical investigation of nature is progressing by leaps and bounds throughout the 17th and 18th centuries and 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 so on. Uh, and there's this sense that oh we know so much more now, but then there's no actual metaphysical justification for this knowledge. How do we know this stuff? How, how does it fit into what the world is? And that- and so you have these enlightenment thinkers, one after another, rushing to save the day and say, oh, I have the explanation. Here, here's the rational justification for why things are the way we now know them to be. And they all just collapse one after another, leaving us with this uh, really cynical, skeptical, anti-metaphysical uh, heritage that, that kind of holds sway throughout the 20th century. Right, right. And that's, again, you see it in Kant, like uh, uh, the the epistemological problem. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is, this is sort of explains why uh, moderns tend to divide philosophy quite differently than did Aristotle or Thomas. Uh, Aristotle and Thomas divide philosophy into speculative and practical. And that's, that's fine. You'll still see that division, but then they look at what, uh, natural philosophy, uh, uh, philosophy of nature, uh, meta and metaphysics and math is actually the third sort of science. Although it's maybe not called philosophy. It's the third sort of science. Logic is just an art. And where's epistemology? It's nowhere. Whereas now we think of, Oh, what do you have your metaphysics? You have your epistemology. You have your action theory. You have, uh, sorry, that was a long tangent, but the point is uh, uh, Nietzsche is the one who explodes sort of the uh, hypocrisies that are present in the Enlightenment thinkers. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I I just to build off of your your a little uh, tangent there. I, so why is it that epistemology and ethics and metaphysics are so heavily divided in modern philosophy? I mean, it's because metaphysics no longer makes any sense. <laughs> If you like modern, the modern practitioners of metaphysics are doing really weird language games, basically, um, in the in the analytic uh, uh, tradition. Or if you go into um, Franco-German philosophy, um, they're really just doing sociology and semiotics. So it's there is no real metaphysics anymore, and. And that uh, the metaphysics that that uh, in Aristotle and Thomas is what grounds our understanding of how we know what is most fundamental, right? right? So that's really where the epistemological investigations happen. Um, well, some of them, yeah, because it happens. It kind of uh, happens three times. You you you, right. you defend science with logic first, which is an art, yes. but you you talk about it, and then you sort of take knowing as granted. But you look into, you start looking into psychology and natural philosophy, right. and then finally you get the ultimate explanation when you're uh, a fully fledged metaphysician. When you look right. at uh, uh, the metaphysics of of how knowing can happen, yeah. So there's this fragmentation that happens because of because of the loss of of a clear um, practice of metaphysics. No one, no one really knows how to do this anymore, because why? Well, I guess we've thrown out the essential conceptual tools to to start doing it. We don't really ask about what is or explanations for what is that don't terminate in mathematical formula, formulae or uh, lists of component parts. Um, so you know what's interesting is you were talking about math. You guys were talking about math and, and the genius of Cartesian mathematics earlier. If you look at how math as a as a discipline has developed over the past two centuries, um, and what's kind of hip and current, what's the cutting edge of math right now? Right. I mean, one of the one of the cutting edge fields in math uh, right now uh, is, is something called graph theory, right? Which which uh, is it, it imports into mathematical thinking the category of relation. Right. <laughs> so it's odd. I mean, you you can see how um, computers and the development of uh, uh, new uh, sets of practical problems have led to um, a greater level of depth in mat- mathematical thinking. So it's not just purely mechanical. I mean, there are all of these insoluble problems uh, at work. Um, I don't know. This, this is also a tangent, but um, yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting, an interesting tangent, I think. Um, and maybe we can use it to, to move from this kind of speculative level of the philosophers mm-hmm. and the theoretical mathematicians who, um, because they're human beings, they eventually have to try to seek some kind of wisdom. But um, to turn that to the effect of this uh, non-teleological worldview on um, 
culture more generally, civilization, if we want to use the word, uh, economics, um, politics, and and sort of not theories of morality, but uh, the actual morality that people live by, and see if we can um, see how things have developed since the Enlightenment and, and where you can see connections between um, the Enlightenment abandonment of uh, of metaphysics and teleology and natural philosophy in the classical sense, um, where we can see that uh, affecting the road that uh, Western culture has taken since the Enlightenment. Right. So it seems like uh, maybe this is this is getting to the same point. It seems like after Kant, you get uh, the rise of uh, utilitarianism, and this is also another way in which mathematics sort of comes back in. Right? You you get people who say, "Oh, we're just seeking pleasure. We're right, and we're going yeah, to calculate." <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's that's opposed to Kantian sort of he has these duties. I mean, he's also, uh, you know, vaguely mathematical about it, not as mathematical, but because he's thinking of things in terms of uh, categorical imperatives and, and uh, you know, uh, he's just he's very analytical. He's a very analytical yeah. uh, thinker. Uh, so you get the contrast between utilitarians and. Kantians, and I think that's that's still a contrast you find if you if you go and try to study ethics today. Those are are two of the big schools, if not the biggest. Right, right, and yeah, and they're they're both atomisms, right? They're they're both right. so in Kant, it's an atom, it's a personalist atom, atomism where everything is reducible to uh, the dignity of rational agents and their their intentions. Um, uh, and in Mill, uh, it's an atomism of uh, pleasure, right? So everything is reducible to uh, the value of, of uh, a certain kind of human experience or sentient experience, maybe. Um, so there's, it's, it's, there's, it, either way, there's a total leveling. Um, there's a, it's fallen away from a sense of you know, Potter was talking earlier about perfection in terms of uh, how something fits into an environment or an ecosystem, right? So uh, the, the the perfection of, of the tree um, is uh, related essentially to where it belongs in the world, um, which, you know, that's, it's an interesting... That, that thought can take you a lot of places yeah. uh, maybe, in terms maybe, of understanding what, what, what cosmic order is. Right. Maybe this would be a good point to turn to um, our Holy Father gloriously reigning Pope Francis's uh, <laughs> Laudato Si, which is uh, uh, my favorite of his documents. Um, and one of the main themes of it is the way this the mentality of uh, Cartesian science has colonized the whole of modern civilization. And you see it embodied in, um, in the capitalist economic system, um, which is set up to uh, 
in a in a very kind of rationalistic way to maximize uh, profit, that being the the most easily measurable uh, good that's achievable uh, by economic means. And so you set up a system in which everything is ultimately subordinated to that, and um, everything else is in the economic system, which is, uh, after all, the main activity of most people's lives is uh, economic in this sense, that is in the sense of producing uh, money, the, <laughs> the measure of, uh, of um, exchange value. Everything else is treated as instrumental to that. And this also affects us, as Pope Francis goes in, goes at great length to show um, the whole relation of human beings to uh, the rest of creation, to the world as a whole, and to the various creatures in it. That even if on a theoretical level they might not agree with this, the way that uh, Cartesianism has been sort of embodied in the structures of modern civilization, in especially in, in the economy, but also in politics. Um, the way that it's embodied uh, leads people to treat everything as sort of res extensa, sort of Cartesian raw material for the domination of uh, the human mind. And, and this is, uh, I mean, this is connected also, I think, to the, the work of St. John Paul II on um, uh, which my father has been working on for many years now, the theology of the body, where he looks at the effect basically of Cartesian science um, on sexual ethics and the way in which the body comes to be seen as just sort of raw material uh, for the thinking subject uh, to be dominated and, and reconfigured and, and, and so on. Uh, in any way that they want. So he sees this as, as the root of the modern um, acceptance of contraception, which everyone before the modern age was always seen as a shameful thing, even though it was certainly contraception was attempted all the time in the ancient world. It was seen as shameful, whereas right. now it's seen as, as kind of a triumph of uh, human progress. And this is, of course, intensified even more nowadays with um, with uh gender theories um which hold that you can change uh your sex so so gender theory is interesting because there we're getting so after the enlightenment uh there's sort of the romantic reaction against the enlightenment so yeah. so to sort of summarize it you might you might summarize it very briefly and very uh, uh ten thousand foot level so lots of details would be different here and there but uh the Enlightenment sort of creates this cold mathematical world where there's no final cause. And the romantics say, no, I don't want to live like that. I love nature. I want to be outside. And I'm going to decide what I am. So instead of going back to Aristotle, they sort of, there's this idea that I can dis discover for myself and determine for myself who I am. Uh, once again, Nietzsche is wonderful at, at uh, puncturing the the sort of hypocrisies and, and blindness of this view. Uh, but you see that with uh, in, in, in gender theory and in sexuality today, you see both the sort of we have power over nature now 
and the sort of there's an instinctive reaction, but it's kind of a blind reaction. It doesn't really get you where you need to go because it ends up saying, uh, no, I get to decide for myself. There is meaning somewhere. I'll invent it. Yeah. 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 It's funny. Uh, you know, Kant is a really boring, uh, dry, stale thinker, but in a way he's, he's the source for both of those tendencies. I mean, he's, he has, um, he has this, uh, very objectivizing mechanical understanding of things, but it's also grounded in a kind of subjectivism, a kind of idealism where really it is all about your experience and, and your, uh, intentions and, and you as an individual, uh, even if while pursuing your individual ideas about what's right, you should also, you know, respect everyone else and give them room to, to well, you see that Nietzsche is right to think that for Kant, uh, it's all about power in the end, or at least I, I'll make this claim. I, I think when you read things like his essay on what is the enlightenment, and then mm-hmm. there's another one where he's, he's pretty explicit about it. Uh, which one is it? Uh, it's, it's the idea for a universal history of cosmopolitan intent, I think. Right. I, if, if, I, if I anticipate what you're going to say, uh, where he talks about the the sort of natural combativeness of man, how he's antisocial. Right. Well, I was also thinking of the principles of political right considered in connection okay. with the relation of the theory of practice and the right of the, in the, of the state. A title only Kant could write. <laughs> Rolls off the tongue. But yeah, I think, I think that other text, I, I didn't have it on mine, but I think it's, it's, it's good. But in both of mine, so he starts talking about how we're not children anymore. What is the enlightenment, right? right? I, I was reading this when I was trying to think about this. For him, the enlightenment is literally about power we're putting off the knowledge and now we can and it's once again it's kant i mean it's like he's so ripe for nietzsche's rising because he's uh he's saying of course you know it's it's uh uh, frederick the great gets to order us around outside but we're free because we can all write scholarly articles so the the priest (laughs) in the pulpit he's an agent of the state but of course He's free. He has power. He's not a child anymore because as a scholar, he gets to write the scholarly. It's like, oh, my word. <laughs> Listen to yeah. yourself, Kant. <laughs> this is not going right. to end here. You have to know this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a lack of, of prescience there. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Poor Kant, if he could see the world now. <laughs> but so, so to go yeah. back to Laudato see. uh, when I skimmed it and read about it, it in a kind of surprisingly, it's it's the most. I think you could say it's the most anti-modern papal document. I think more than John Paul II, more than uh, Benedict, even. Uh, it's. I think you have to go back to the 19th century to find a document that's as thoroughly anti-modern as Laudato Si. Yeah, I agree. And what can we learn from it? Can can you just sort of, uh, as we wrap up, uh, summarize some themes that uh, we can take away from Laudato Si as we go out into this cold post- There is one one more thing I want to touch on. yeah. After that, but first I'll say one more thing about Laudato Si. But then I want to return to that question of the teleology of the whole. Because last episode we were talking about how 
um, Aristotle begins his argument for teleology by looking not at the whole world, but looking at uh, the the substances that are closest to us, which are living substances, yeah. animals and plants. Um, but I think that we should end by reconsidering that uh, question of the whole world, the the stars and, and galaxies and so on, and teleology there. And I think that is one thing that Laudato Si points us to, because Laudato Si does talk about um, the world as a whole, an ordered whole that we're part of um, and that we have a certain role to play in. And um, it talks about how ignorance of that or uh, ignorance in the strict sense that it's not just nescience, but actually ignoring the knowledge of the whole uh, has led to um, also a destruction of our own habitat as humans. So he, he, one of the more controversial things about the encyclical, of course, was his use of a lot of environmental um, concerns and uh, um, claims from the environmental movement. Um, but the the point of those claims is that this the way of relating to nature that uh, is embodied in modern civilization, in capitalism, in uh, modern science. Uh, in modern politics, um, because it it cuts us off from the whole of which we're a part and makes it an object of, of pure instrumental domination, it ends up destroying um, our common home. Yeah, the reaction to that, uh, uh, you know, people are like, ah, oh, pro- this progressive pope. But but uh i i'll go out there and say the people who reacted against the the so-called environmentalism are far more modern than pope francis here because what they're saying is the pope can't tell me what to do i can decide for myself i can determine for myself and uh nature really is just here uh to be used by me right so let me quote let me um Read a quote from Laudato Si. Um, This is uh, from paragraph 80. And here he actually quotes St. Thomas's uh, commentary on the physics. Um, He says, God's divine presence, which ensures the subsistence and growth of each being, continues the work of creation. The Spirit of God has filled the universe with possibilities, and therefore from the very heart of things, something can something new can always emerge. Then quote from St. Thomas, Nature is nothing other than a certain kind of art, namely God's art, impressed upon things, whereby those things are moved to a determinate end. As if a shipbuilder were able to give timbers the wherewithal to move themselves to take the form of a ship. Um there you have very clearly that the notion of nature that we talked about in the um, last episode, nature as a principle of motion and rest that is ordered to the good as an end. And this leads then to the question of uh, how it stands with the entire universe, um, which the order of the whole universe uh, St. Thomas teaches is the, the 
greatest created good, the greatest uh, good in created things, the order of the universe as a whole. And if we look back to um, our starting point last episode, that is also a question that Aristotle comes to um, eventually in the later part of the physics. Is the whole also good and ordered to the good? And if it's not, if the whole universe um, is uh, random, a uh, matter of chance, and the goods that accrue to us creatures in it are just random, then uh, then the order to a good on a, on a lower level seems to be uh, basically illusory. Right. If I the think the entire that's right. thing is, is, is random, then the parts that seem to be ordered to good, that's just an illusion because that, that's a, a side effect of, of these random forces that are at work in the whole. So um, what do we say to that? Is the whole universe order to some good? And how could we uh, argue for that? So I think you can see there is order in the whole universe, but it's not quite as, as uh, easy as uh, Aristotle and St. Thomas maybe thought it was. Uh, and you see it first because you do start with what's more known to us, which are, which is not the whole universe. The whole universe is very remote from us. Uh, and it's it's remote it's it's where we get to finally so you start from what's more known to us and that gives you confidence in thinking there should be some sort of cause or finality even if it's not uh immediately obvious to us because all sorts of things close to us happen where we don't immediately know why it's happening that way but we see that it's keeps happening and that it's happening by necessity and we can make these arguments that we talked about last week for why it must be for the good. Uh, but then also you can even look at things like evolution and see that even things that are happening through processes of uh, uh, through random processes or, or semi-random processes are happening in a regular ordered way. And in fact are happening in ways that end up being good. Uh, uh, it may be that genetic mutation brings about an eyeball, but an eyeball lets us see. We see that there's the eyeball has a purpose, and you can't really talk about it without talking about the purpose. Yeah. So there. Yeah. Sorry. Go on. It, oh no. It's so I. I guess I have. I have two two thoughts on that. Um, first is um, suppose you start from a, a from a totally. Uh, anti-teleological perspective and and look at the evolution of say an eyeball the emergence through a chance process of this thing which is ordered uh which has these uh properties that, that enable it to do something right it's very difficult to deny that the eyeballs form the form of the eye of the organ or the organism as a whole um is is distinct and has all sorts of potencies that that its bare matter did not have Okay. And then the, secondly, it's, it's difficult to deny once you see it in action and see this, the kind of rhythm that leads to the, the creation and decomposition and regeneration of things like this through history, um, that there, there really is a, a, a kind of motive toward rest uh, in these things, that, that the, the 
even if you can't pinpoint the, the end point of an organic development, uh, you can say, well, within this rhythm, there are, there are kind of troughs where rest happens. Right. You, know, you think of a ball uh, moving back and forth between, a, um, between uh, two high points, you know, rolling back and forth. There are moments of rest and there are moments of uh, sharpest action, right? Fastest motion. And history is like that, right? Uh, everything in the universe, I mean, this is a very, a pretty good uh, physics uh, claim that, that there, there is oscillation in everything. And part of that is, is rest. And so you can find perfection and rest for the individual things that attain it. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, and then the, the other thing that I want to say, and this is probably the last thing that I have to say uh, on this topic, is that um, when looking at cosmic order, uh, it's, it's essential to, to start with an admission of ignorance. I mean, we can, we can construct uh, secular myths all day long about, uh, you know, where we came from and where we're going and the shape of the universe and its constitution and so on. And they can all have plausible evidentiary bases, but they're still just conjectures. Um, and ultimately we need to recognize how little we know because what we do know, as we've said over and over again in the past two episodes is what's closest to us. And these are human things, living things, um, objects of art. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, that sort of Jobian I don't know. humility, right? It's, it is a, it's a Jobian humility. I don't know the order of the universe as a whole, because I have never seen the order of any of the component parts of the universe or where they are, how they fit together. Uh, it's too tall an order for me. Um, no pun intended, but, <laughs> uh, the, the but I can see the order of things that are close to me. Um, and if you look at uh, the ecology of the planet, it's really extraordinary how much order there is uh, here and how much things tend toward stasis, rest, and perfection. Right. Even if, it, um, even if it's not a re- uh, even if here below the rest and stasis is not one that will last forever. Uh, no, that's not right. a new it, insight. It never the, the, the ancients were acutely aware of this. This was a, uh, uh, something the Greeks were constantly thinking about was was how uh, time and change uh, sort of wreck everything below. Their their ideal was the perfect, the immobile, the immobile. Uh, right. And you really uh, you do, I think, see order towards rest, even if it's imperfect here, even if it's not. You know, the flower blooms and then wilts. Yes, it wilts, but it it it. Did bloom at some. It point. did bloom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I want to I want to end by pointing to two um, thinkers who have been defending uh, a universal cosmic teleology with in very similar ways, but with some slight differences. Um, the first one is uh, Sean Collins, who is a, a tutor at TAC. Uh, Joel and I both had him, I think. Did you have him, Joel? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had him in freshman summer. He, taught, so. me, he yeah. taught me the physics. Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> well, um, Sean Collins has got this lecture called uh, What is Force? Uh, and I recommend any 
any uh, listeners of this podcast who have persevered to the end to Google it, Sean Collins, What is Force? Brilliant, brilliant essay. Um, and there he argues that, uh, in fact, if you really look at, at what force is uh, and uh, don't um, rest content with the uh, kind of superficial account of it that you get in uh, Newtonian physics, uh, and even in post-Newtonian physics, but really look at uh, what force is, that eventually you're going to have to give uh, a kind of teleological account of it, that force finally is going to uh, be about um, the way in which a body uh, tries to keep its stability. Um, so there'll be waves moving through the body, and it's... it's uh, resists in the way in in order to keep its integrity and then he applies this um to a view of the whole universe where you see the what einstein thinks of as the curvature of space he will think of as this kind of uh as this kind of teleological movement that's ordered to a certain stability and a certain and uh, collect collecting bodies in certain places uh, space he takes to be a kind of uh, substance, a very unstable substance that's uh, able to to curve and and you know change um, change its size and so on. And the the movement of the heavenly bodies in this uh, extremely unstable and uh, low on the scale of being substance, which he calls space. Is not so much the movement through space as the change of uh, as a change within space. So it's like there's the famous metaphor of uh, the expansion of the universe as being like raisin dough rising. You've, you've probably heard this uh, comparison. Collins yep. takes that metaphor and really runs with it, so that uh, everything is the whole universe is suffused by this dough. This doughy substance, as it were, and the heavens sounds body, like monism. The what is this? Bodies are like raisins in this uh, in this dough. I don't like position. it. It sounds very pernicious. The change of position with respect to themselves is is really caused by kind of uh, warping and uh, um, wave motions disturbances in this dough. Uh, huh. You should read it. The second one, <laughs> the second one is uh, by a guy who I actually wanted to have as a guest on this podcast, but unfortunately he didn't have time. Uh, John Brungart. John Brungart is a, a postdoctoral research fellow um, at a university in Chile, uh, but he he went to TSC like uh, me and Joel, and um, he did a doctorate at Catholic University of America on the first mover. Well, and, and also uh, on, on the thought of, I thought it was on uh, Charles DeConnick, right? It was partly on Charles DeConnick, but the main theme that emerges there is the first mover. And this is, and he um, revives in a different form, Aristotle's own solution to the problem. So we have that problem that Strauss sets out, you know, eventually teleology is going to be decided by what you say about the heavenly bodies that is really about um, the world taken as a whole, um, mm -hmm. of which the, the heavenly bodies are the principal parts. And Aristotle's solution is that um, you can demonstrate that the heavens are moved 
by a, a first mover who is without quantity, uh, is without matter, and uh, has infinite power. Um, and that's the end of the physics. The, the end of the physics is beautiful. He comes to that point where he, he demonstrates a being which is non-physical, a being that has no quantity and has infinite power, and then he just stops. And then in the metaphysics, that will be taken up again, where you'll see that that is uh, a divine being. But um, Aristotle thinks that the first mobile body, that the first mover moves, um, is the outermost heavenly sphere. And so what Brungart does is he re he uh, rethinks the argument critically, given the the um, observations of modern astronomy and so on. And he comes to the conclusion that there is a first mover who moves all things, and the first mobile body is not the outermost sphere, since there is no outermost sphere. But the first mobile body is again similar to Collins. Uh, what is called what we would call physical space that is it's uh this kind of uh first substance in the universe that uh, fills um the whole world between all the heavenly bodies anyway uh, that's a very uh, primitive summary of his extremely sophisticated argument but again uh, highly recommend it interesting yes so 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 contrary to bring it all home contrary to leo strauss <laughs> there are there are some people out there who don't buy that you have to reject teleology and in fact try to keep very uh uh and in fact you know it's a defense of the physics as a demonstrative book whether or not it shows exactly you know how the cosmology of that plays out is a question that we can talk about but uh, right. It's a defense of the uh, physics as a whole, as demonstrative. That's all the time we have. I think we've probably gone way too long for the second episode, but uh, this was a lot of fun. Thank you both. It was. It was great. Thank you. Thank you both. Oh, <laughs>